A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to the first of the Absocape Epic podcast. So my name is Mike Finch. I'm one of the announcers at the Absocape Epic and I've been doing that for the last five years. Today we're talking all about the launch of the route for 2020 and uh, that uh, route was actually announced yesterday at a special gala function here in Cape Town. And we are sitting here in the Cape Town uh, office of the Absocape Epic along with Katie Sack who has been the race director of the Absocape Epic for more than 10 years. She's currently the director of global mountain biking which is responsible for the expansion of the Epic series around the world. And Neil Gardner is probably one of the most well-known faces in mountain biking here in South Africa. He travels all the way around the world looking at different events but has been commentating the Epic for how many years, Neil? Uh, it's coming up for 10 years. Uh, nine years, I think, is the, is the official number. So we're going to be talking a lot about uh, the route. And of course, all of you that are doing the race next year, it's going to be one of those things that everybody's going to be talking about more than anything. And even if you're not doing the route next year, I think there's a lot of interest. Katie, I know that you've been involved with this race for so long. Even if you're not doing the route, people are quite interested in what the route looks like, even if they're not on the starting line come March next year. For sure. I mean, it's like it's always an exciting thing to talk about. And then there's always the year after to join on the route or, you know, some sections might have been written before. Um, so it's always a good topic. So let's just talk about some of the numbers, Neil. Um, it's eight days, as it always is, including the prologue, 647 kilometers. Where does that sit in terms of epic routes in the past? Well, there's always the argument about uh, what it looks like on paper and what it's like in reality. And if you if you do look just at the stats... Uh, we've seen far longer races in the past. Uh, 2008 was the longest. In fact, 2008 was a nine-day race. And um, 900 kilometers, I think it was, Katie? Somewhere around about there. And um, we've, we look at, at today's, uh, today's numbers are 600. So, yes, you look at those, those numbers. They have fallen. But the type of terrain is the most important thing to look at. And um, that's really the most critical value is, is something that can't be measured. You have to actually see what it's like on the trail surface. Katie, just looking, I mean, you've been involved literally from the start of this race when it was, the traditionalists will tell you that the first few races were literally like Jeep tracks and farm roads and you could have ridden on a, on a modern day gravel bike. How has the route changed from what you've seen from those first days? Yeah, look, until 2008, we had the point to point system where we went from now all the way to Cape Town. Um, and then we changed it over. Um, introducing the clover leaves and with that the riding for sure became um, much more single track much more technical riding also more fun riding I would argue um, uh, the one factor for that was because we could throw all those trails in doing the circular routes and not having to cover the distance in order to get to the next town but also we've seen tremendous developments in the trail building more and more wine farms opening up their you know their vineyards for for riding um, forestry trails so yeah. towns you know like I mean toolbox it's like if you look at the amount of trails they've developed over the last five six seven years it totally changes um, uh, 
the, the what, what we actually have to work with. And as such, I think the writing has become much, much more exciting. It's like, yes, there isn't that much of a journey, but therefore it's much more intense. Um, and yeah, as I said, for me, more challenging and more fun. Yeah, I can see you gagging to say something here. Well, people always talk about real mountain biking. It really <laughs> is. Uh, it's real mountain biking. It's uh, it's tough. It's it's technical and challenging on the ups as well as on the downs. And we really have to um, nod towards the the growth of the sport in in South Africa and worldwide. In fact, the growth of uh, of stage racing, and uh, and the inception of the epic series as well. In that South Africa um, and especially in the Western Cape, the sport has has burgeoned and. The Absa Cape Epic is in no small way responsible for that. Uh, there's been new trail work net network set up. I remember when we first started mountain biking in, in Cape Town, um, I hate to say it, but back in the 90s, there was not a lot of choice. And now literally every weekend you can go out and you can ride a new trail. And let's let's face it, the um, we cross over some, um, some private land and a significant amount of private land in the Absa Cape Epic. And um, those wine farmers are becoming mountain bike fans themselves. Yeah. Many of them are even riding the race. So we have to we have to acknowledge them and we have to really thank them for uh, for helping us grow this amazing sport. Katie, I'm, I'm interested to know when this race first started and Kevin Fumark is the founder of the Absa Cape Epic. When you guys are sitting around a table looking at this first few races, when did the decision come to say, okay, we want this to be the definition of what we saw, saw as real mountain biking? Because there would have been some people who would have said, you know, maybe it's too hard. Maybe you shouldn't have this massively technical stuff. It should be about literally traversing uh, long distances rather than technical distances. Was it a conscious decision to do that, to say it's going to be shorter but more technical? I think it was just the evolution of the sport as such. I mean, when you say real mountain biking, was it is real mountain biking. I mean, look at the bikes that, you know, people rode in the 80s. I mean, do you consider that real mountain biking? Not if you look at it today, but for yeah. sure it was real mountain biking at the time. So, you know, 2004, it was real mountain biking. That is what mountain biking was at the time, at least in South Africa. Um, so actually the decision to not go point to point anymore, but do the circulars was introduced, or not the decision so much, the idea finally came from one of our race doctors. And mm. he said, it's too stressful for the guys to constantly pack and move this for the riders. And it would be the better riding experience if we could just do clover leaves. And initially we laughed at the idea because we were so set in our ways of like, this is what you do. And then we thought it over and we're like, okay, actually that makes, that makes sense. It's like, let the riders experience more of the riding and less of the packing and the logistics around it. Yeah. And then, as I said, and then it became more and more trails were available, but it, it wasn't a conscious decision. It was certainly much more of an evolution. And then, you know, evolution drives evolution. And then we continued from there on. So what do you think defines an epic stage? Are there kind of tick boxes that you go through and say, right, we need to, we need to basically have the following things in every single stage that makes it an epic stage, the differentiator? I think one of the most important things is variety. And that's not necessarily variety in the stage itself but that each stage is somewhat different. I mean, you, you, you actually don't want to have all those boxes ticked, like it's got to be this long and this much climbing and exactly this terrain. It's really that overall package of eight days and how does that all fit together. Um, but for sure, there needs to be an untamed element. You, you want to be out in nature. You want to be remote. That said, there's also a, like... It's nice to then come to the winelands where it's more civilized. You see gorgeous wine farms, beautiful buildings, you know, more people. So it's really that combination. For sure, it needs to be a challenge. So, you know, a physical challenge, a mental challenge. 
but then we're not there to break people. <laughs> you know, it's, there still needs to be an enjoyment factor. How much you enjoy it, that depends on your fitness level maybe. <laughs> um, but it is certainly about that overall package and getting that balance right. So it's, it's kind of being, when you're out on those stages, kind of feeling a little bit remote at times. And I'm sure everybody that's done the EPIC will tell you that there are moments on those stages where you go, wow, I'm literally in the middle of nowhere here. And it kind of, you feel kind of slightly vulnerable. Is that a good way of describing that untamed feeling of being on the EPIC? For sure. And when you're looking at um, uh, the upcoming route now, um, you certainly have that feeling on stage one and two. And then as we're moving moving closer to Cape Town, you know, you therefore have more spectators because, you know, yeah. the Cape Townians are coming out. I keep saying the wine farms, you know, it's like, um, uh, and it's, it is that mixture, but for sure it's like stage one and two, you're going to have that complete outness feeling, which is a big, big appeal to the internationals coming out. Cause you know, if you live in Europe, you're especially in Northern Europe, you're simply not used to those kind of landscapes. Well, that, I mean, Neil, the, the, my question to you then is how does this differentiate from events like the Swiss Epic? which is also quite technical, and what differentiates the South African Epic from other series events around the world for the Epic Series? I think there's a, there's a signature landscape of the Western Cape, and there's just that, that classic view that you get, um, for example, in the series area where we're going, um, that, rocky, that rocky look, that sort of craggy terrain. And um, Switzerland, you can pick up any postcard of Switzerland, and, you see, and these are the views you see in the Swiss Epic, and it's spectacular. And there's a there's a character of the Absecape Epic. There's a certain there's just that that flavor that you get, and it's it really is. You asked earlier about that um, that feeling of what it's like to be out in nature. And my favorite is I look at look to the horizon to see if I can see any telephone poles or pylons. And there are a lot of spaces in this uh, in this coming in this coming the 2020 route where you see absolutely nothing. There's not a single sign of civilization. And um, yes, you feel vulnerable. Yes, you feel like you're absolutely out in the wild. And if you something, if you did have to get out of it, you'd have to do it under your own steam. And that's, I think, part of the the incredible appeal of this race. And also, I think that in terms of a lot of the route here, which you know we get from feedback from from the overseas riders, it's rugged riding. It's relentless riding. Um, you know, there are no climbs that are a thousand thousand five hundred meters nonstop but it's relentless. Up is rugged, down is rugged. If you look at the Swiss Epic, I mean, where I've just come back from, mm. um, there's a lot of climbing, but it is smooth climbing. And if you're not used to climbing on rugged surface, uh, you, you might be really fit, but your body's going to take a hammering. I think just on that, um, on the physical effort of going up a, a steady climb and say, for example, the Swiss Epic, or even in a, in a Tour de France stage, there was a very steady effort um, and the sports scientists will will comment on this and, and analyze it, but uh, there's a very certain type of effort cardiovascularly and just from the muscles of uh, going up a smooth climb, from going up uh, one of those, we call it torque, um, as in the, the effort, the torque required to go up. And uh, just those rough, those bumps, those rocks that you have to constantly readjust your position, you have to often go a little bit into your red zone just to get over a certain, um, certain little crop, uh, outcrop, it's that kind of thing that if you're training for this race, you really got to prepare well. You've got to spend time on your mountain bike. You've got to be moving backwards and forwards on your saddle to and fro. You've got to be moving side to side. There's a lot of uh, body language that's got to happen just to get to the top of one of these climbs. And it's not like a, like a road race where in road races, there's lots of downhills that you can relax on. You know, at an epic stage, you're concentrating. You're either climbing hard or you're descending and having to concentrate. So it's, just a, it's not just a physical thing. It's a mental thing as well, isn't it? Concentrating on the uphill is, is absolutely essential because if you put a foot down, it means that you've got guys behind you, first of all, are going to shout at you. <laughs> and also the fact that um, you, you break your rhythm. 
Yeah. You want to try and um, you want to try and keep that rhythm, keep it, uh, keep tapping it out, so you can get to the top. And uh, it's it's one of those golden rules of climbing. You got to find that uh, you got to find that that thing, that mojo. And it's really it's it's should never be underestimated in terms of uh, preparing for this race. But the main aspect is just trying to trying to remember that you can't measure that effort up to the, up the climb. You you have to really sometimes go maximum just to get over one of those little little uh, middle humps. And on the road, for example, or even on the, perhaps in the Swiss Epic, you can measure yourself. You can go at 70%, you can go at 80%, you can even go at 90% or 60%. But in some of these climbs, and especially on stage two, you've got to kind of got to go 100% just to get to the top. Well, let's run through um, the course very briefly. Well, let's do it in sort of three um, stage increments, if we can. The prologue, of course, is the traditional UCT prologue with the huge crowds on the mountain, 20 kilometers 600 meters of climbing, Neil, it's a, it's a classic because in many ways it's a, it's a great sort of atmosphere at UCT. There's people on the route all the time, and I think it's a chance for the riders to kind of get an idea of what, they, what the course is about. But it's also quite technical, and that descent going down on some plum pudding, which many of you who have done that, and I live in the area, that is a it's terrifying descent when you're literally in the first 15 kilometers of your epic. It's super treacherous, and it's just that those loose surfaces, especially in the, uh, the end of summer in March, uh, does get very loose. And I think that with, when it comes to the athletes, from literally from the back markers right the way through to the pros, these guys have been tapering for a week. They've, they're literally like uh, horses just yeah. waiting to burst out of that start gate. And uh, it really takes a lot of self-control to, to not go too hard, not go too fast. And with the crowds, the excitement, I know just going on uh, climbing up Dead Man's Tree, you see guys going way into the red because they're just buoyed by the spirit of the crowd. And uh, they, sometimes, even after 20 kilometers, there's some sore legs after the prologue. So, Katie, stage number two is what you're calling the queen stage, which is quite surprising because we always expect the queen stage to be later on in the event. 98 kilometers, 1,800 meters of climbing. As you'll see later on, there are lots of stages which seem to be harder. Why do you think this one is particularly tough? It's really, um, look, in mountain biking, numbers don't tell you that much, or at least not just the numbers of climbing and distance, because it doesn't speak for the terrain. And yes, some of the later stages are longer, there's more climbing, but it is the terrain on stage two that that, that is really the challenging part. Um, uh, it is very much out there in the middle of nowhere. Going into the Witzenberg Valley is an absolute highlight. There's uninterrupted single track for 20, some 20 kilometers and then sh shortly back onto Forestry Road, more climbing, but it is rugged. And later on, you, you get the more manicured trails, which, yeah. you know, I mean, they're all fun, but the ones are easier to smile at than the others, right? So also, I think it's like once you're later in the race, your body got used to the riding, especially after stage four. So you start recovering, your body's getting into it. Stage two is a bit of that rude awakening out there. And then there's, of course, the absolute unknown, which is the weather. Yeah. So generally, we're expecting like hotter weather, more inland. So series Witzenberg Valley is luckily quite high up. So it should be a little bit cooler. Um, but we take that into consideration, too. It is also definitely the most untamed stage of the race. And that's why on paper now in the in the launch race, we said that is going to be the queen stage. But of course, we can't predict the weather on the day. So 
So I mean, I mean, we, 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 do, we haven't missed out stage one because that's 98 kilometers with 1,800 meters of climbing. I think I got it slightly wrong. Stage two is 94 kilometers with 2,050 meters of climbing. So that's the one that we're talking about. That first stage, again, Ilsefontein, that area, also quite rocky as well. So it's a, it's, a, it's a slow bleed into that tough second stage. Well, it's the flavor of the area, the flavor of, um, of, the, of the terrain, just the way you, uh, just, you can just tell by the trails what they look like. And um, actually, in some aspects, some of the tr same trail builders have uh, been creating the um, stage one, stage one, and both um, stage two's trails. Well, I think all, all I think about in those areas is rocks. I mean, is that fair that's, to say? That's it's pretty rocky. much it. It's rocky. It's rocky. Yeah, but it's amazing. I mean, it's just like you know, rocks on the trails. Yes, but the rock <laughs> formations. Yeah. So when you get a moment to actually take your eyes off the trail, the scenery is just absolutely astounding. I think we we often. I may have been guilty of it myself, saying it's a geologist's paradise. If you're a geologist, you've got to come and do this, uh, at least come and watch the route, uh, switch on the TV, and you'll see some amazing views, some amazing formations. Well, let's hope the riders don't get too close to the rocks because they want to be staying on their bikes. I mean, it's amazing to think that a few years ago, people were riding 26s, um, which I remember my, the epic that I attempted to do in 2009 on a 26er. I mean, it's it's almost those sort of that sort of terrain, that the 29er wheel is really where it's at. I mean, you it's almost... A different game riding a small wheel bike. I can't even, I can't, in the last <laughs> couple of years, certainly with the evolution, and again, like Katie said, the evolution of the sport has gone hand in hand. It's a, it's been a, a, an involved process. I can't remember seeing anything other than a 29er at the race. Definitely not in the top 100. Don't know if anyone can. Yeah. There was one last year, and I don't think he kind of, you know, enjoyed his choice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think he traded it in after day one. Okay, so moving on to stage three, four, and five. Stage three is 88 kilometers, 2,100 meters of climbing. Stage four, 101 kilometers, so the distance is getting up nice and high there. Stage five, 85 kilometers. Neil, just you've done the trail run, and let's just kind of put this whole thing into context. Every single year, there's a whole bunch of you that go and ride this trail. Admittedly, it's in a different time of the year, so there are conditions that change throughout that time. But what is the design, what is the purpose of the trail ride? Um, why do you go and ride it? I know you guys spend literally out there out you're out there all day just trying to get the route done and it's it's a long week of riding well just chatting earlier about uh, the purpose of the trial ride it's um, in the early years it might have been different but now it's a it's a complete dress rehearsal of the 2020 route or of the following year's route and uh, you said different time of year yes we rode it in, in in august in the middle of winter i think i saw minus six on my garmin maybe uh Maybe that was certainly early in the morning at seven o'clock in the morning, but uh, we start at the same time and we do the same route. Um, it's pretty much ready. And it's a, as I said, it's a full test of the route. Katie, I mean, you've done it lots of times. I remember you and I, have, you and I have had discussions about this in the past where I've said to you, that's just too hard. I think the epic that I attempted, I said, this race is too hard. And you said, if I can do it, anybody can do it. But you are a very accomplished mountain bike and done a lot of riding in a time. Is it, is it, for you, does it feel like if you can do it, it, it is possible for everybody? Well, Mike, I also remember you saying the next time you'll attempt Epic will only be when you see me overweight and unfit. <laughs> so, so, yeah, you it's might be want a to while, mention think, that. Yeah. <laughs> um, Katie, you've got um, some good Strava. If you look at Katie's Strava, she's got some very interesting <laughs> heat maps in all parts of the world. You were in the Kyrgyzstan recently? I've got right. to get fit on the climbing somehow, but let's get back to the Cape Epic let's route, shall Epic, we? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> No, look, I mean, we've, we've got riders from varying levels um, joining on the trial ride. Um, also bearing in mind that we don't train for it. So, you know, yeah. it is the middle of winter. We just hop on our bikes and get on with it. Um, uh, what is too hard? You know, I think we've been very consistent over the years. Riders know what to expect. 
Um, uh, we've also looked at it well, somewhat scientifically in the way of like that we look at the at the winning time. So a lot of the stages we decide is like, is the stage too hard or too easy by saying, well, what is the distance? What is the climbing? And most importantly, what is the winning time? So that gives us a pretty good indication then on what the back markers are going to take. Again, rule of thumb is the back markers have to finish within double the winning time. So, you know, if you go and ride your local races and you see you're way, way um, above that, well, maybe pick one of the shorter races, you know, pick one of the weekend events instead. So, yeah, riding the route fast, the trial ride, what is really important is to make sure that the stages fit together. So not just saying each stage on its own is amazing, but, you know, what about consecutively? If you're riding day three on tired legs, it feels very, very different than just coming in on day three with fresh legs. Well, nobody's going to have fresh legs on the event. Um, and getting that balance right. Also, if you're looking not just at the amateur field, but at the pro racing field, you want to mix up the stages. So you have different teams specializing on different stages, you know, make some of them more the transition stages that might have more open roads, although there's never a lot of those anymore. Yeah. Um, but, but, you know, just mixing it up, mixing it up with the climbing, with the terrain, and really to get that overall balance over the eight days mixed up. Tell us about the trial, the trial ride in terms of what, what an average day looks like on the trial ride. I mean, you guys get up at five o'clock in the morning and... It's still dark at five, so yeah. we get up a little bit later and a bit more efficient in the morning. How many morning. people are there on the trial ride? It's about 15 of us. So okay. Well, we start off with 15 and then we finish with eight. <laughs> Um, so no, look, I mean, we, so that's a, that's a 50% attrition rate. Yeah. I want to ask you about that. That, that was the part of like, <laughs> we don't train. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, look, it's like, we kick off pretty much just after eight o'clock. Uh, so sorry, seven o'clock. So around about seven thirty, pretty much like when it gets light. I yeah. mean, as Neil said, it's August. So, you know, we don't want to ride in the dark and then we're pretty much out there for the whole day. So often we actually don't make it within the maximum stage time, but that is bearing in mind that we need to climb over fences. You know, the yeah. gates are not open. Certain sections aren't always cut yet. So a section that during the race is going to take you like literally 30 seconds to blast through. We are going to be 10 minutes of like yeah. crawling through bushes because it just hasn't been cleared yet. Um, so generally it's a full day out on the bike, like anything between like seven to 10 hours. Um, and then it's, I mean, the route is done at this point. We are really there to do, as Neil said, the dress rehearsal and to sign it off and then maybe say it's like tweak this, tweak that. Um, uh, but we're not making decisions anymore. Should we go right or left? I mean, that's really the job of Hendrico, Andrew and the guys. So they are presenting to us and we go and ride and then provide the overall feedback afterwards. So throughout, throughout this podcast, we're going to be listening to um, excerpts from Hendrico, who's out there on the course. Hendrico Berg is the, is the course director, along with Andrew White, who's the route from the route design team. And those two guys are the guys that kind of set the course and design it. And um, and by the time you guys get to the trial, they've already figured out exactly where they're going to go. And they spend, what, how long in advance doing this thing now? I mean, strictly speaking, we, we start about 18 months in advance, but okay. also bearing in mind that it's not just the route. There's a constant discussion going on between the logistics team and the route team because it's all nice and well to have amazing routes, but our race villages are huge. So therefore, there's no point in having the most fantastic trails if then there's nowhere to put the race village. So, yeah. so that process starts really 18, sometimes 24 months um, in advance because um, uh, prepping those, those fields just to be able to accommodate a race village – 
just takes time these days. And yeah, there's that constant argument between the two. <laughs> and then to settle on the all best solution for everybody. And obviously Enrico and Andrew on, on the trial ride, I, mean, I imagine they're the ones leading the trial ride. Yeah, they're, they're there. And, uh, and we always laugh about Andrew. Andrew's, um, he's a, a, what you could say he's a local. Um, he lives in Grayton and he knows these trails like the back of his hand. So he's a, he's a born mountain biker. And we, we laugh at him in the mornings at the trial ride. We're all dressed up like Eskimos and, um, he is, uh, he's, I think he's got a shirt on sometimes. He puts on a, a jacket. Yeah, so it's, uh, he's, he's, he's a real, um, he's really, he's out there all the time looking for, uh, looking for new trails. And they really are super in tune with, um, with what the latest and greatest uh, routes are. And in fact, I was struck by um, the, the 2020 route when we were out to the trial ride, how many new uh, sections of trail there were. And these are guys that know immediately as soon as there's a new bit of trail or if, if they're speaking to a landowner and a landowner wants to cut some trail they know they're the first to know about it they know exactly what's going on um, in each area and that's really crucial to this whole um to this whole process is the is that you have guys that are really on the ground and we so, also heavily like depend on on the actual you know on the locals the local mountain bike clubs the local landowners so often we have a guest rider joining for a day or two and you know those are really the guys that are driving the trail developments around their respective towns and that's invaluable having them on board getting the the buy-in from the local community as such and they are going to be doing a lot of the fixing up of the trails later on um, you know, as race day approaches. So yeah, it is, is absolutely crucial to have that support from the locals. For 2020, the Upsa Cape Epic Prologue will once again return to the iconic Table Mountain with the start and finish hosted by the University of Cape Town once again. Apart from the spectacular views over the city of Cape Town, favorites like Deer Park, the climb to Dead Man's Tree, as well as dropping down plum pudding towards the finis will all be included once more. The prologue is start off with a, quite a lot of climbing, so it's advisable for the riders to basically warm up a little bit, I know, calm down the nerves. And no, it's only plum pudding that's fairly technical. The rest is mostly open dual track riding. Yeah, and have a great ride. It's a perfect way to, to start your 2020 Absa Cape Epic. Um, experience. The Epsa Cape Epic will be moving to the Sierras Valley for the first time since 2010. Stage one will be an out and back loop from the sports field within the town of Sierras, heading towards the famous and very popular Eselfontein trails. With 98 kilometers and 1,800 meters of climbing, this might be one of the shortest stages once in recent memory. At the same time, riders will experience more single track riding, including a lot of single track climbing than ever before on any stage one in history. Yeah, I mean, riders should not be fooled and think it is an easy stage. The shorter distance means it's 98 kilometers of pure concentration and effort the whole way. And the trails in Eiselfontein is, you know, a variety of technicality, some of them are really technical. Um, some of them are free flowing, big variety of trails. And the big and a nice one of this year's stage one or 2020 stage one will be that we will have three spectator points in a 300 or in a 500 meter radius, which means that it's a real of awesome experience for, for all the spectators. I'm Enrico Berger, the route director for the Epsa Cape Epic.
Another thing we always look for, something else we always look for is, is the untamed. Um, there's a lot of manicured, beautiful trail out there, but if you don't go out into the wild every now and then, um, yeah, it somehow it lacks a bit of spirit, and, and that's when, when you end up getting into the mountains and the climbs. I'm Andrew White, and I'm part of the APSA Cape Epic Route Design Team. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. So you hear Hendrika um, just saying a few words about each of the stages throughout the podcast. We do apologize. There's a lot of animal noises in the back of all his, of all his uh, broadcasts because he's out on the course um, and actually been out there for the last couple of weeks doing some of the course, course preparation and making sure it's all happening. So that's a real authentic farm sounds from Hendrika out on the course. Yeah, he's, <laughs> it'd be great to have him in studio. He's a resource from some amazing uh, facts and figures about mountain biking. He spent a lot of time in the US. Um, so again, another real expert in his field and um yeah we we can't get him in the studio so we have to we have to catch him when he's out on the course let's get back to the course we talked about stage three four and five stage three the 88 kilometers stage 401 stage five looks like a brute 85 kilometers with a reported 2900 meters of climbing uh, that's that's a that's a beast Neil, you look there. The, tell us about that. You know, the Arctu is that's a it's a pretty tricky uh, climb. That um, I, I find this this area, this um, this Wellington area, is spectacular. Personally, if if I wanted a good mountain bike ride out um, on the weekend, I'd grab my mountain bike and I'd head out to the Wellington area. And uh, it's again that concentrated uh, that concentrated stage where you just get the best out of out of the region. And um, Wellington's, uh, I think, world renowned for really some of the best single track and not just all manicured uh there is uh, there is some smooth trails but there's also some uh, some technical stuff away and as far as commentators there's quite nice wines in those areas for on the evenings after we finished our jobs during the day i'm a bit concerned about the stigma that's attached to the, <laughs> the wine drinking commentators not entirely true that's we how do, we get through the day we do have to keep our uh, maybe the announcers perhaps <laughs> no, the commentators we're all very professional in that of studio course. Of course. Tell us about up to is about the climb. I mean, it's 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 obviously uh, it's obviously something that is. Uh, Katie's going to talk to this. Up to is of course the famous Tour de France climb. Up to is up in in Afrikaans's monkey or baboon. Um, tell us why it's called that. It, it was really yeah. I guess we'd need to ask Peter van Weyck. I mean, he's the guy <laughs> who's building those trails. Um, it was just a nice referencing back to to the Tour de France, and you know, I guess also Cape Epic often being referred to as the Tour de France of mountain biking. It was quite fitting, um, it, but really, it is because it's got a lot of switchbacks in it. So it is a forestry okay. climb. It is um, obviously very different. I mean, I've ridden Alpe d'Huez in in France. Um, famous for the switchbacks and it is really because it's got all these turns and all the turns are numbered like you know each switchback until you get to the very top so is that is that dutch corner um be, yeah it? that's that's <laughs> the one we struggled to get the camper vans into yes, the forest yeah. you know so and the dutch don't like to climb very much <laughs> no no yeah. that's <laughs> not, many, not many alps in in holland <laughs> and then, are there lots of primates on the route is that that's why it was named as well I'd imagine there's a lot of monkeys out that, on that side of the area. I think we, you know, we, we, we 
even on the tri ride, we see quite a quite a bit of wildlife. And yeah. uh, yes, this is certainly baboons and and um, other wildlife in the area. Um, I think you know mountain biking, mountain bikes rolling around, and certainly the race that some of the uh, wild animals uh, might not be right on the trail. But um, yeah, it's. Uh, this is the untamed African race. Yeah, you want to be feel a bit. You want to feel a bit vulnerable out there, as we were saying earlier. Stage four, just going back slightly. Bainscliffe Pass, another big, famous pass in the Western Cape. And you'll uh, just describe that for those of you who are lining up next to you. You probably want to know a bit about Bainscliffe. Bainscliffe Pass is uh, f- from a racing aspect. Um, we always think you know it's good. It's a tar section. Um, the climbers will be out, and um, so often we watch the race unfold. I've watched from the helicopter and um, and in latter years watching from the studio and um, it's a bit of a tactical it's a bit of a tactical climb it's all on tar um, it's one of those long efforts and it's probably the closest to a, a, a tour a grand tour climb that you could get and um, if you're in the right group and you're on the if you're on the back or if, if you're on the back foot it can make a big difference uh, to to the results at the end of the day because uh, you can lose a significant amount of time um, or gain a significant amount of time uh, with the benefit of uh, cooperation in a group and very yeah. often we see those groups forming on that climb. For the amateurs, it certainly is like the one climb um, in, the, in the 2020 epic that they can control their effort. So yeah. Neil was talking about it earlier. Um, uh, it's, it's a very pleasant gradient if you're not riding flat out. So, you know, you can actually sit back, enjoy the scenery, control your effort level. Um, and that is certainly something that I would recommend because I remember last time we went over there, we learned the hard way on the trial ride <laughs> where we came up with this silly idea to just race up and race up in teams. Yeah. And we paid the price the next day. It just seemed like such a good idea at the time, you know. And uh, and, and the next day, it's like, you're, you know, you're five days into your riding, but it's like your legs are shot and it's just completely unnecessary. So unless you are racing you know don't go flat out save the going flat out later on when you've got those short steep climbs where you simply have no choice but to go flat out there if you have a choice you know hold your horses i think it's totally true you know if you're listening and you're uh, preparing for the race and thinking about what uh, day by day what your tactics will be this is not the place to try and uh, to try and uh, gain any time Uh, no heroics uh, you might gain if you go full on. Um, you might get a minute over your uh, your nearest rivals if you're um, racing some friends or some some um, you know, some people that you've met along the route. Um, that the cost is so much. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it's you just don't have sore legs the next day. That'll lose you ten minutes. That'll lose you twenty minutes. And it's a notorious headwind into in the lower sections where the, the gradient is super gentle. But with that headwind coming in. Rather, you know what, team up with some other guys, um, go into a little peloton. It's like, yeah, exactly, find the big guy, but Mike, you're not riding. (laughs) (laughs) And and like, yeah, you know, it's like cruise up there as a team effort. There's a lot to see and uh, it's certainly a beautiful area. It's it's one of those road passes where you, even though it's on tar, you you feel like you're in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. And in fact, we've we've tried, when we cover the race, we we rely a lot on um, on cellular signals and uh, this is, to all intents and purposes, sometimes it can be a bit of a dead area. So um, maybe apologies in advance that uh, we might not have full coverage of the race. But uh, yeah, it's uh, you're really out in the middle of nowhere, and uh, there's a beautiful, um, beautiful river down below. And uh, again, take some time, appreciate the scenery. Katie, you mentioned um, earlier on in the podcast, and, and just a few moments ago, about this transition of the riders 
from those first first three stages into kind of finding a rhythm and kind of at stage four five they're kind of finding the rhythm and I, I, we've noticed this as announcers on the route those first three stages like after the product one two and maybe even three some of those riders particularly the novices come across the line you think these guys are not going to line up the next day and they do and seemingly and this is a weird thing it's this transition from like this pain and suffering and agony for the first three days and suddenly they kind of find their epic legs and they seem to get stronger as the race goes on it's a weird thing that it happens because you expect to get more tired, but actually the riders find themselves getting slightly more comfortable. And I say slightly. Yeah, well, look, it's like I'm not the medical expert on it, but it is certainly it's like, you know, that that has been proven in, uh, in endurance sports that your first three days, it's like it gets harder and harder and it's not the route, but because your body's run down. Um, we often then say it's like as long as you manage to get your bum in the saddle on stage four, you know, you're through it. Um but then it is actually a fact that your body starts recovering as of day five. So until then, it is down, then it is up. And then you've really also found your rhythm. You know, you got used to getting up early, um, getting on the bike. So, so, so it's a combination, but certainly it's like the medical data also absolutely speaks for that. I let the experts, however, yeah. talk about yeah. that. Um, certainly from this year's race, um, it is also going to be a matter that the trails, I'm not saying are getting easier, but they are getting smoother as we move closer towards Val de Vie. you've seen this as well. I'm sure you've experienced it because you've done the epic yourself. Is it, is it kind of weird that you, your body transitions into this epic machine after stage four? You get into a bubble and that's really what it's all about. You get into a bubble where your, your, your world narrows, things cease to matter. <laughs> things that you thought mattered and when you're doing stage one, two and three just don't matter anymore. Unless it involves you getting on your bike, um, feeding yourself, uh, making sure you don't crash, making sure your bike's in one piece and preserving yourself and your bike through this process, um, everything else fades into the background and your attention and your energy, not to be too metaphysical about it, but you, you're focused on the task at hand. It kind of, it's a strange kind of survival mode where the things yeah. that matter are the things that are in front of you. And I think that's why people really keep coming back for more is that there's that escapism. And it's not some random escapism uh, it's not some nebulous term. It really is a way to to take your mind off um, off everyday life and, and real life, and actually to experience what it's like to be. You could essentially you have to call yourself an athlete if you're able to complete this race. What it's like to be essentially a full time athlete. And um, in terms of racing, I'm not sure if the average power increases throughout the throughout the um, throughout the eight days. I would dispute that. But what happens is that um, you have certain riders that decline. Um, decline more than others mm. and that's really what uh, what the mark of of a really good stage racer is an experienced stage racer is that how fast do you decline and if you decline um, less than the others then you're going to be better off stage two of the 2020 apsa cape epic will be the first transition stage of the year and will be 94 kilometers long with 2050 meters of climbing the initial 20 kilometers will be fairly flat, no major climbs, but followed by most probably one of the icons of the event and one of the, and the first major climb as well of the 2020 Absa Cape Epic, namely the Old Gedo Pass. Starting off on fairly easy dual track, halfway up the, the 10 kilometer climb, turn into a bit steeper single track and the last third, which I believe will also be the Land Rover technical terrain of the day, 
The climbing is over fairly rocky sections, a few step-ups on rocks, nice slick rock riding, but all attainable. But I mean, if you're not comfortable, I'd rather get off and walk there. After the Old Trader Pass, riders will go and visit the Witzenberg Valley. And for this year, we'll make use of most, if not all, of the best single track on offer in that area. Um, some of the single tracks are really awesome. Some of them are not nice and free-flowing, but yeah, you do have some technical bits in between, so be awake, be aware when you're riding. And there will also be the, the odd slick rock drop-off on sandstone drop-offs that the Witzenberg Valley is famous for. Leaving the Witzenberg, we'll go down the Overarpat or after a trail ride or a trail ride incident, now called Lucky Luke, um, down towards Tolbach, taking the riders to the race release for the next two days in Saronsberg. Stage three will be 88 kilometers with 2,100 meters of climbing and will be an out and back stage from Saronsberg and back. The stage will, can be divided into three sections. The first loop was fairly flat through the farmlands just to warm up you know, the old legs and the body from the, from the day before's fairly tough stage. And then we'll head towards the Witzenberg, the old familiar Bones Trail. But yeah, the Bones Trail for the guys who's been there has been revamped quite a bit for the 2020 Epsa Cape Epic, adding some new single track, adding some new single track climbing and um, awesome views over the valley. Added climbing means added single track downhill and linking up with the old existing well-established trails heading back towards the town of Tilbach. The third loop will take riders in the direction of the Groot Winterhoekberge and to most probably one of the toughest, if not the toughest climb on this year's event. Um, heading up uh, some single track climbing once more, some dedicated new built single track linking up some beautiful areas and across some awesome view from the farms up top of the mountain. Heading back to some more new built single track all the way down to Saronsberg to conclude stage three. Right, so let's move on to stage six and seven. So we're getting close to the finish now. 95 kilometers for stage number six, 2,300 meters of climbing, and then the final stage into Valdivie, 66 kilometers. Um, Katie, what's always what's the thinking in those last few stages? I mean, I know for a lot of the riders, they can feel and they can smell the finish, but it's always those last few stages where anything can happen. That, and that last stage particularly is never easy. Look, I think anything can ever happen at any given time. Um, certainly the thinking behind the very last stage is to not make it too hard. We want to get the people home and we're yeah. going to get them home by a certain time. Um, that's why the final stage sees a little bit of a later finish time. It's also important for us to get the pros and the amateurs in not too spread out, you know, to maintain the vibe and the atmosphere hmm. at Valdivie. And you really want to have everybody in and being able to, soak in the achievement as opposed to being completely and utterly shattered from that one stage. Stage six, well, it's, it's a little bit like that urban myth, like with stage one, oh, stage six is the hardest, it is not the hardest. You know, we play with what we have. So it is not, and we say stage six has to be hard because it's the penultimate stage. It's just like we don't say stage one has to be the hardest because it's, it's stage one. It's, you know, we, it depends where we are. It depends what the best trails are. It is really about delivering 
the optimum experience. So we're quite happy to have a shorter stage um, uh, if that delivers the best trails. But at the same time, we're not going to cut out amazing trails just to make the stage short. So it is about highlighting what the area has to offer and to make it the best that it has to offer. And at the same time, not just lengthening it for the sake of lengthening it. There's no point in doing that. It's really what is the best stage for that day and then deliver that. There was always those stories in the first few epics uh, a few years ago that when, whenever the course was designed, you would get to the finish, you could hear the announcers and then you'd go off on a different tangent and you'd have to do an extra little loop to come back. Uh, was that was that deliberate back then? Were they were just kind of, we're going to tease you with the sound of the finish, but we're just going to mentally mess with you and make sure we send you on a little extra bit. So that actually started in 2004. And that year, um, there was a river that came down in flood. So the reality <laughs> was, yes, the riders were literally right at the finish. The river came down in flood. We needed to reroute at the last minute. And there was a massive detour. <laughs> and that's where that urban myth started. So that riders always think they can hear the finish and we're taking them up again. We certainly don't do it on purpose. Um, the other thing to bear in mind, sometimes when you get quite close to the finish, but yet you're not there, we need to look at logistically how to get the route in. So, yeah. you know, there's so many spectators these days following the race. There's our own logistics tracks. Um, we want to avoid the road crossings. We can't cause traffic chaos for everybody else around. So sometimes we then do need to actually detour the route in order to get riders safely into the finish. But generally, the aim is always to deliver the best experience and certainly not to do mindless loops. So we can, it's a we can wishful thinking. You can bury that myth in, Neil, that uh, we, the epic don't deliberately bring you close to the finish and send you out just to mess with your head. I think the, the riders are maybe guilty of a bit of the mirage effect <laughs> where they're in the desert and they're thirsty and they just want to see the, the finish and then uh, that little oasis is actually just a figment of the imagination. So, And unless, you. of course, there is just an amazing trail close to the finish, in which case we do it deliberately, but <laughs> it is just to deliberately throw in that amazing trail. And we just turn the sound down and the announcers down so they don't hear us as close to the east. <laughs> Exactly. Now, just tell us about that final stage. That, that I mean, I know it's it's always a very big celebration. When you look at the riders and what they do every single year, how tense it must be at the start of, of that final stage because you've done so much. You've probably gone through a lot. There's a huge amount of emotion involved in that final stage. Um, when you're designing a route like that, as Katie said, you want to get as many people to the finish at that point, but you still have to make sure that it's got that medal you get to the finish feels like it's worthy. You've got to earn that medal, and uh, that's been the the point of this whole and this whole discussion in fact is to is to keep that consistency throughout the years and to make sure that uh, every single person from 2004 to 2020 has really earned that medal and in, in equal measure uh, don't think that uh, I don't really hear a lot of people saying oh that was the easy year that was the, you had it easy I think it's uh, I think that's really the art of of, of what we've seen over the last um, in the, uh, coming up to the 17th edition is that uh, everyone every single year, those riders have earned that medal. I think on stage seven, it's a lot about like, you know, the unpredictability where exactly that untamed factor comes in again. So for sure, once you've ridden the prologue and all the way to stage six, you know that you're physically for sure fit enough to finish, you know, the Absa Cape Epic. But then comes that extra factor in there and you could have a mechanical you could just like lap concentration for like a split second and that's really the drama that we've seen previously on uh, on stage seven i mean we've had guys running for the last 20 kilometers with their bikes like you know yeah. literally carrying their broken bike or dragging their broken bike across the finish line um so anything can still happen and and and, and that is it it's it's that you don't know until you actually have crossed the line 
And even then, I mean, last year, one of our Amabubezi riders, he's finished every single race. He crashes like 50 meters before the finish right. line in the finish shoot. So yeah. he did finish with a broken collarbone. It's, it's, you, you, you're not done until you're done. And I think that is like, you mustn't ever underestimate it. So yes, the last stage is generally not the hardest, but you can't lap your concentration. You have to keep going. Especially with that last climb. I mean, there's that um, we talk about the Protea climb. This is a really tricky climb. Um, and uh, the descent in 2018, that uh, from what I remember from the, from the racing aspect of it, there was um, some decisive moments on that descent as well. Really rocky descent. I know I split a tire open on that descent. And um, like Kelly says, you've got to be, you've got to, the same rules that you applied on stage one of self-preservation, riding conservatively, you have to apply right up until that line. Stage four will be the second transition stage of the 2020 Epsa Cape Epic. And taking riders towards Wellington via the old favorite, the Bainscrew Pass. The stage will be most probably the one with the most um, tarmac of all the stages this year. I would say basically all the tarmac um, that we use in 2020 will be within stage four. Stage will be 101 kilometers and about 1,950 meters of climbing. After initially fast section, the first rough bits will be the trail through the, uh, the first private game reserve of the day, followed by the first proper climb, and it's a five kilometers Clakey's Kral Pass that will take riders into the Zierflakte area. Zierflakte routes, you know, with all the harsh rains and weather over the last years, it turned into a mountain bikers paradise with a lot of fairly technical and really nice challenging riding all the way towards the new trails for the first time that we'll be using that it's called the berry blast single tracks that will basically take the riders to the foot of the bainscliffe pass once we've done the nine k's up the bainscliffe pass two three k's down the bainscliffe pass we'll hit the first section of the white trail climb, and it's all part of the wild boar trails that will end the day off en route to the race village. Stage five will be 85 kilometers with 2,900 meters of climbing. This stage will definitely have the most climbing per kilometer of all the stages of the 2020 Absa Cape Epic. The stage can basically be divided into the three peaks, or we can just call it the three peak climbs. The twist of climb at 30 kilometers, the scout trail at 40 kilometers and cool runnings at 55 kilometers. Each of these climbs will can be basically a standalone event and combined, it makes for a proper good stage for the 2020 Absa Cape Epic. This is basically queen stage material, although this will not be the queen stage. Let's just summarize then the, the route for 2020. Um, Neil, I'm going to ask you to give you, us your three stages to take note of. I know every stage is important, but the three big stages for you. I think you've got to look at that, um, at that queen stage. That's really the first... Um, the first Which the for first... you is still stage two, because I know initially you said you were thinking stage five, but you might have changed your yes, mind about on that. Paper, again, with the paper versus terrain. That <laughs> On paper, that you look at stage five, there's the, um, the most climbing. Um, but stage two, in terms of the, the level of difficulty, um, how tired you'd be after stage two, I definitely have to uh, consider that that's the queen stage. Um, traditionally, we, we've all talked about the, um, the rude awakening that is stage one. 
Um, it will be hard. It's, it's stage one has traditionally been one of the hardest of the route. It's going to be hard. Let's not uh, let's not deny that. Um, and again, it's one of those uh, it's one of those things to remember that um, stage one is complete transition from everyday life into epic life. Yeah. So stage one is super important. It's also very important for the riders from the back to the front to measure their efforts. To remember that there's still seven stages to go. Queen stage, stage two, and um, I'm going to look to that uh, stage number five, that uh, that Looper and Wellington. Um, there's some really some spectacular Arpduez. I, I love to talk about that climb. There's the full Monty, and um, so yeah, some uh, some some tricky trails. So one, two, and five are the ones to watch out for. I think that I like about the the trails number one, two, and three as well is that there's some really we've seen the terrain. We know we've been there before, but there's some new trails. Yeah. So even if you think you're an old hand and you've ridden this race ten times, it doesn't matter. There's still some new cut single track, new trails, new climbs. And uh, there's there's going to be some surprises. Katie, your top three trails uh, routes to watch out for days. So I definitely think was stage two also to watch out for just in terms of beauty. I really have to say it was almost unanimous on this year's trial, right? That we said stage two to us was one of the most beautiful stages ever in epic history. So I'm really hoping for good conditions that, you know, the riders will experience it the way we experience it. In what way? Just describe what what you mean by beautiful. You you know, just, it's just everything. It's that complete out there, no civilization, absolutely amazing scenery, those red rock formations, then the absolute epic descent on the old wagon trail down into Tulbach. And, you know, it's like also it's like this. So there's there's in a way a lot of history in there because when we first used that wagon trail, I mean, I remember at the time still with Peter walking up there. You could barely get up there. We didn't even have bikes with it because it was completely and utterly overgrown. Then, you know, the local guys cleared it up. So we've subsequently used the trail a few times, but it's only ever been used for the Absa Cape Epic. So then it overgrows again. So then, you know, a few years later, we come back, we open it up again. I mean, now it was still extremely, extremely rough. But come race day, for sure, you're going to be standing on top there. You can actually see Table Mountain in the distance if you take the time, but you really shouldn't take your eyes off the trail for too long. Yeah. And then you just plummet down there for, for like 900 meters, which is like one of the longest, like, uh, like you know, descents that you'll ever experience on any epic. And then it's almost, mind the words, almost like flat to the finish line. So after a tremendous effort, you know, to get to the top of that wagon trail, it is such a reward to, to go down. So it, it is truly epic but it's hard effort. So that wagon trail, just describe that. I mean, I can't imagine, given, given the fact that we're talking about the epic here, this is not smooth flowing single track. It's There's some technical sections to that descent. Yes, I mean, it, it, it definitely is. It's, yeah. it's It was very overgrown. For sure, like now when we rode it during the trial ride, we actually still had to walk a lot of the sections because it, we are only clearing it closer to the time once also like, you know, winter's over because otherwise everything gets washed away again. Yeah. Um, uh, but we know the conditions it was in in 2013 on race day. So, you know, from that point, it's, it is it is going to be all rideable. There are going to be a couple of bridges in there to get you over the most rocky sections. Um, uh, but it's a long, long descent and it will shake you up properly and you've got to stay focused right to the end. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, it is just incredibly rewarding. We always say, you know, if you're, uh, if you're riding this 
and this goes for the back markers as well as the front guys, uh, take a gel at the top. <laughs> and it's not, it's a bit counterintuitive. You know, you, you think you should take a gel before the bottom of a climb so you can be ready for an effort and uh, fuel yourself up. But uh, definitely need to be very alert at that top, uh, at that, the top of that trail from the very top right the way through to the bottom. And uh, we rode quite a lot of this on trial ride and it was overgrown. And the big challenge for us was to try and get all the way down. We didn't, we had to walk certain sections. Um, I think it'll be very different on race day, but um, yeah, you've got to be, you got to have your wits about you from from the very top and then for the other stages like you know i <laughs> i tend to be a little bit careful of like like what to say which ones are the the, the easier ones especially because i remember again last time we were in Tulbach and that stage was definitely supposed to be an easier stage um but the temperatures were like literally in the morning five degrees and that was now in march not on trial right and then soared up to 40 degrees you know is that when they cut the stage slightly short that no, that stage? year we okay. didn't. No, 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 that was that was a completely different stage where yeah. we had a shot. So, so that one w was just meant to be, you know, yeah. a fun day around <laughs> Tulbach. And I think some of the riders really wanted to kill me that night at rider briefing. After I said, "Oh, you know, this will be a fun day," so I'm a little bit cautious these days. So, I mean, it's not being cautious. It's actually saying like, if you're doing the epic, when we're when we're talking about three stages, every stage is could be as hard as any other stage. And don't expect an easy day. I mean, that's in short, that's what the epic's about. It's not really easy days unless you take the first day really easily, but even that's tough. Well, I think it's like, you know, to quote actually our Dr. Evil from Inception of Cape Epic, like the only easy day is the day of registration. Yeah, yeah. Rest of your other two stages, so you said stage two. What was the other stage? Stage five? Obviously a big one in terms of climbing. I think stage three also don't like stage three has one monster climb in it and that's a tough one that's the bone trail um uh, no it, it comes yeah. it comes it comes in the in the in the second half before that new um single track like um so it's going up fanty's pass uh -huh. and there is for sure some walking involved so again normally we really try and avoid any sections that you know, riders need to walk. The top guys will ride it, um, uh, but there will be some walking involved. However, it does get you to an amazing, like, new cut trail that then drops you down through a beautiful gorge forest. Um, so, you know, we deemed worth it. Um, but that might just hit you by surprise because, you know, you think, oh, yeah, it's Tulbach. It's one of the easier days. So I think definitely watch out for that stage three. Also bearing in mind what we talked about earlier, that stage three is when your body is the most exhausted. Yeah. The big thing with, uh, and having spoken to people all around the world about this race, I was speaking to a guy, uh, he's a Portuguese, uh, he's a Portuguese rider. He manages uh, one of the pro continental teams in, in Portugal and um, Pedro Duque. And um, Pedro was the first person to say, you know, that it's the real thing are the conditions, uh, the conditions in the terrain. And he was talking about a day just like Katie was talking about where it was three degrees and then it was 40 degrees and just getting used to that kind of difference in temperature not just the body but also the bike i think that uh, even your tire pressure changes your your shock pressure changes are different that uh, with these kind of extreme temperatures so it's it's very often something that's not written in front of us not written on a script not even written on the trail surface it's um it's what you experience on the day and we've seen entire races the entire entire careers in fact have changed on on one small culvert where somebody makes a mistake not plotted in the route, not marked as one of the queen stages, but just a pivotal day just because of what happens out there in the untamed. And, and the sand is 
often a, a discussion point to the epic because when you ride the trail ride, the trail ride, at the sand is not necessarily an issue because it's the middle of winter in the Western Cape when the rainy season's on, but the sand can play a massive role because suddenly you've got a section of 10 kilometers where four kilometers is a lot of sand and you've slowed your speed down to 5Ks in that hour. And it's, that's a big factor that you can't really prepare for or even predict. Well, I think we can predict it. I mean, we know the trails well. So for example, for sure, one section to be looking out for is um, uh, the transition stage that then goes into Wellington as you go down uh, through Surflakte. So Surflakte and then the descent that actually leads you towards Bainsclough Pass. We know that is sandy. It's not like we've never ridden those sections, yeah. you know, in sandy conditions for sure. We had, well, but then again, you know, it's like we had running rivers there in August. So it wasn't like we were riding it in perfect conditions. We were riding it in different conditions. Yeah. Um, however, we have also ridden it previously in the sand and are going back for some of the sections um, as well. I mean, there's actually a great race coming up in Woolsley that takes in some of the sections. So, you know, riders can actually also get to test some of those routes before if they just keep an eye on the mountain bike calendar in the Western Cape. So that's for, you know, the local guys. Um so we do factor that in when we predict the winning times. I mean, we talked about that earlier in terms of, you know, how winning time, we, we, we don't yeah. say, oh, this is how long it took us. We look at like, well, what did it feel like? What do we know about what are the conditions like in March? And then based on that, we predict it. We don't go, oh, it took us this long, therefore that's going to be the winning time. So there's a lot of considerations that we, you know. I mean, I know from an announcer's in. perspective that when we look at the, 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 the expected winning time and the maximum stage time every day, it's amazing how close those times are to what you predict because I know that you, a lot of experience involved in making those decisions, but Neil, it, it, once you know the routes and you know the kind of terrain, you can fairly easily predict with the, what the pros are going to do, even despite the fact that conditions continually change on the mountains. Well, I think that's where the science of it comes in, or at least um, it's hard to put science as a label, but uh, definitely the thoroughness of the of the of the route design is that it it goes that deep, in that you can actually predict it that closely, and uh, we rely on it on it a lot. Definitely from when the riders are coming to the water point, we know when they're going to arrive. Um, the camera crews rely on it a lot. And yes, it is. It's a. It's quite legendary how accurate those uh, those times are. So when you pick up a copy of the the event magazine of the event program, uh, you'll be able to see and time your your viewing times uh, by by those. Um, those little bits of information. And, and but look, those... we track those times, hey? So it's, yeah. it's, it's one of those, it's like, I mean, yeah, some of the route guys, they're just amazing. You just ask them, it's like, oh, what's the average speed? And they just go, gut feel, you know? Yeah. So I'm not so much for gut feel. I just rather look at my spreadsheets. And basically ever since 2008, we've like, you know, um, gone through every single stage. And so we have the average times and, and look at it and, you know, make notes on conditions. And then you compare it back. So yeah, some people do it with gut feel, other people do it with spreadsheets, but I think that combination then allows us to, um, you know, pinpoint it quite accurately. One thing to obviously bear in mind on that is that while on stage one, two, and three, the pros are generally still going flat out, um, you need to have a little bit of a safety buffer in there for stage five, six, seven, because yeah. the race could be decided. It could be much more uh, tactical race. And then all of a sudden, it's like, you know, your average speeds are just so out because you expected them to be faster. But that's because the race for yellow might have been decided or not yet. And then, the, you know, so that's when tactics come, whereas like tactics on stage one is full blast. I want to win. <laughs> Stage 6 of the 2020 Absa Cape Epic will be 95 kilometers with 2,300 meters of climbing. The route will for the first time traverse two private game reserves with some purposely built trails for the event. 
lots and lots of wildlife to experience um, for the riders. Follow the nature reserves. We will visit the famous wild boar trails and it will include the following favorites. Wild boar roller coaster, Peaks, Pikes, Peaks Peak, Lace Lung, Unhappy Hog and the Golden Mile. The route will also traverse some of the more famous vineyards in the country. With 66 kilometers of riding and about 1,850 meters of climbing, stage seven of the 2020 Absa Cape Epic might be the shortest of all the stages, but by no means an easy stage. Challenges for the last few podium places can be expected. Leaving Wellington, riders will climb up through the old forestry roads towards the Tuesdorf Pass and heading around the northern side of Paul on their way to Valdeby. The last thing in the tail will be the Freedom Struggle Climb, followed by the Bone Rattler Descent and taking riders past the Drakenstein Correctional Services and via Pearl Valley to the finish line at Valdeby. Right, so let's get into some of the um I suppose it's the rumour mill around the Epic and there are lots of sort of legend stories about the, what the Epic does. We, we tackled a little bit about this idea that the, the Epic route always kind of brings you close to the finish and then sends you on another tangent just to kind of frustrate you. We know that's not true. One of the questions that a lot of people talk about is that the first couple of stages, often stage one and stage two, are so hard that people say, well, they do it deliberately so they can get rid of X amount of riders in the field and they can save money because they don't have to feed them in the feeding tent afterwards. How true is that, Katie? It's a good idea. We should maybe look into that. <laughs> um, no, that is definitely not true. Um, I actually distinctly remember it was 2017 when I had asked for stage one to be to be easier because we didn't want to go in with a bang because it is true. Traditionally, stage one is often the hardest. And, 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 we, and we really tried to make it easier. But, you know, we had to get over our cuppers put. It was like the only way to get from um, the Himmel and Arda side of the valley, like over onto the other side. So there was no way to make it easier. So and then there's been other years where stage one and stage two were circular stages. So, you know, we were debating. It's like, well, should you swap them around? But then you're sitting with the decision. Are you going to give them the harder stage on fresh legs or are you rather going to give them the harder stage on day two when the riders are already tired? So yeah. there we have options to maybe swap them around. Um, but it's certainly not a deliberate decision. I think it's maybe linked to the fact that generally stage one and two, we are more in the back country. And then after that, like, you know, six, seven, like we come more towards, you know, your Stellenbosch, your Wellington, where you've got shorter circular options and that those options simply don't present themselves as you're more, you know, further away from the center. So it's, it's more linked to the terrain and us wanting to offer, as I said earlier, the best riding experience, as opposed to saying it's like, yeah, let's go in with a bang. <laughs> You definitely look at the 2020 route and uh, that we've said it already that the terrain in the series area is rougher and yeah. the climbs are rougher and the, even the descents are rougher. So yes, it's going to be harder and it is, it's a matter of the terrain rather than anything else. And certainly like shortening stage one, it would be a shame. It, it, would, it would literally, it's like, it would hurt me to say, oh, let's take out this one loop you know just for the sake of made, making it shorter so sometimes in the trial ride we uh, we've we've definitely have seen this in the past where we've done a stage and we've come in uh, really late in the evening sometimes after six o'clock and we've elected to remove bits so it's a bit like a kind of a sculpture sometimes where we've said well that loop is 
perhaps a little bit over the top. So let's uh, let's sculpt this off and sculpt that off. And um, it's, it's, I guess, part of the trial ride is that you you get to you get to see it real real time exactly how hard it is. Well, that, that's my next question. I'll ask both of you this question. Let's start with Katie. Have you had people say that's too hard? Oh yeah, for sure. But it always depends on who says it. Yeah. <laughs> like you, Mike, you would say I've, that I've <laughs> after not training, right? That's true. Um, <laughs> look again. It you always get somebody saying that but I think the vast majority and we ask it in the survey afterwards we actually do ask the question you know would you like the tech, uh, writing to be more technical would you like the stages to be longer um, uh, and based on the feedback it's there's very few people that are actually asking for it to be easier I think people do come because they want to have that challenge they want to prove themselves they want to brag about their achievements and therefore yeah. you know by making it easier you would take away the essence of, of what the race is Certainly, there have been days where even we said that was too hard, but that was too hard because on the conditions, like of like at the time, 40 degrees, yeah. headwind. Um, I think it was 2011 when we had hail, something that certainly is like, you know, nobody expected like, you know, to be happen in South Africa. So, so those are the days when you then go, wow, in retrospect, you know, that was well, not too hard, but extremely, extremely hard. But... You can't necessarily cater for that in advance and make every stage 50 kilometers because, you know, you might have adverse weather conditions. We then cater for that again with possibly extending the maximum stage time. And there we've actually developed that formula where we said, well, if it comes to extending the maximum stage time, we peg it on double the winning time. So that takes out any, um, you know, just that that random factor to say, oh, uh, you know, who feels like giving an extra 15 minutes? No, we see it's like how long did the pros take? And then, you know, to to, to be very clear on how we how we calculate that. And so I think just, just, just to clarify yeah. that then, that was one of my questions. How do you come up with the maximum stage time for those back markers? It literally is double the time, expected time of the winners. And if that expected time of the winners is slower than you expect, you then potentially look at extending that maximum stage time. So when we when we initially set it, we set it with a safety buffer. So we say it's like, you know, we're expecting this to be the winning time and then we give a bit of a safety buffer in there. Um, and generally we don't have to adjust the, um, the maximum stage time. That adjustment we only cater for in the rules um, to not make it at random. When do we extend? We only extend if the um, maximum stage time was less than double the winning time, then we extend. Otherwise, we don't extend. Yeah. So the golden rule is if you're riding, don't give up. Just keep going. <laughs> and I think also just on that, on that point, you know, is it too hard? Is it too easy? I think if you ask the winner, the winner will always tell you that the course was absolutely perfect. Yeah. Well, that's, that's the next question. Have you ever had people saying the stage is too easy? Because I know a few years ago, and I can't remember exactly what year this was, there was a, an issue with the heat. The stage was cut short slightly, slightly. I'm not quite sure much, how much it was, but there was a lot of criticism saying, well, this is, if how can you cut it short? This is the epic. You can't make it easier. Well, I think at that point, you really need to say it's like rider safety first. And uh, that was a decision that was not taken lightly, for sure not. Um, the reality is, um, I mean, you, you know, you, you've got an entire team that comes together and the most important part in that um, instance was the medical advice. And we had literally the previous day filled up Medi-Clinica Manus 
because people were dropping like flies. It was 40 plus degrees. The humidity was extremely high. And this is all stuff that we measure. So yes, you can ride in 40 plus degrees, but it's, it's, it's that humidity factor that yeah. makes people drop. And, uh, and, and we measure that throughout the course. And at some point you just have to say, you know, it's about rider safety. So for us, it was also a decision at the time to say, well, we are running this, uh, the risk otherwise to having to abandon the stage because the medics very clearly said it's like if we're hitting these, these, and these parameters, we have to pull the people off the course. Otherwise, we cannot guarantee rider safety. So now you're trying to evacuate 1,400 people, 1,300 people off the course in one go, spread out over 60 kilometers on the course. You know, you, you can't do that. So it was 100% in the interest of the, the, the riders to say, well, we don't want to abandon a stage. Let's control it and let's tell everybody from the very beginning, this is the shortened stage. But I mean, that has happened once in, you know, 16 years of history. So it is certainly not a decision that we take lightly. And we definitely consider the fact that this is an extreme endurance event and are setting completely different parameters than you would have for your normal weekend race. So personally, I've ridden a lot of a lot of races. I've worked on far more all over all over the show. I've just come back from from the Swiss Epic, which was mind blowing in its own way. But the Cape Epic, it's that that Africanness, the the roughness of, of the terrain, the the red dust, those those early morning scenes with the sunrise and the, and the big pelotons of riders riding in riding into the dust. Um, it's it's iconic for a reason. And then there's this year, the Zierflakte is is gonna be mind blowing. I know we rode the Zierflakte in, in winter and it was an adventure in its own crossing, fjording through rivers that were like waist deep. Um, in summer, it's gonna be the complete opposite. It's gonna be dry and, and harsh and provide a very different challenge. And then there's the Witzenberg Valley, which is a proper mountain bikers playground. I know uh, lots of people hate that saying proper mountain bikers, real mountain bikers, but the Witzenburg Valley is, that's tough. You have to be, you have to be tough, you have to be fit, you have to have bike handling skills to, to survive it. And then Wellington is, oh, it's steep. It's, I live in Stellenbosch, I ride a lot in Stellenbosch. Wellington's the only place that that I just, when I think of like we're going for a ride in Wellington, I just think it's going to be steeper than Stellenbosch. It's the only place where in South Africa where you climb more meters per kilometer than, than Stellenbosch even. And it's great fun going downhill, but yeah, it makes you work to get to the top of every single climb in Wellington. But the trails, are, the trails there are, are fantastic. And I think once, once you get through the rough stuff on the, on the first, uh, what is it, five, five stages and you get into Wellington, it's still gonna be a challenge. I mean, the challenge then will be will be the steepness of, of the terrain, but um, there's definitely there's definitely a little bit more fun to be had where you can you can trust yourself, trust your bike, let go of the brakes a bit and and trust the trails that there's nothing nothing untoward is gonna be around the corner. Whereas in the first couple of days you're gonna have to be sharp the entire time because there's always a rock lurking. I'm cycling journalist Seamus Allardyce. So here's a bit of a, a conspiracy theory. We've had a few of those today. Um, is there a number when you look at your results every year that says this race was perfect because we had X amount of people pull out? 
um, or didn't finish? Uh, is there a kind of a number that you work with saying, if everybody finished, it's too easy. If so many people pull out, it's too hard. Is, is, that, is that the way to judge whether an epic has been successful as a challenge? No, absolutely not. Because again, if you look at the dropout statistics, it is not linked to how hard we perceive the race to be. So last year saw the lowest dropouts, um, dropout rate ever. And I can confidently say that last year was certainly not the easiest route no ever. However, if you look at the conditions, the conditions last year were perfect. We expected much hotter weather, which we didn't get. You were talking about sand earlier for stage one and two. We expected sand. It rained at night, but it only just, you know, rained enough and drizzled to settle the sand, but not to have rain during the day when the right. So it was such perfect conditions. It was only on stage six that the temperatures were higher and we saw it immediately in the dropout rate on stage six. So the dropout rate is primarily linked to the conditions that year. And I mean, it would be you know silly of us to say it's like oh you know it was seven percent. Let's let's make it harder. I mean, those are the things that you cannot predict. I mean, Neil, the the the, the marketer in me says the if you have a higher percentage of dropouts, the more valuable that method, the, the more valuable the metal is at the end of the day. So you want to make sure it's hard enough for people to say not everybody's going to finish this because if I'm doing an event like that. And I know that 20% is pulled out. It feels like it's more valuable. So it's, it's, it's valid in a way. I think it does give you bragging rights. If you say you're the only person to finish the race, then that's, that's <laughs> great. But I think also if you speak to anyone who has that medal from, uh, from 2019, in fact, any of the years, they'll tell you that they earned it. Um, yeah. And probably not, uh, I think, because of the spirit of camaraderie and the spirit of mountain biking, uh, very few people will, will ever defer to somebody who gave up and, and, and climb on the back of that. I think that everyone's a, they're all part of a family and um, no one, anyone knows that uh, misfortune can befall anyone. And uh, very often it is that. It's, somebody pulls out not because they're not good enough or they haven't prepared well enough. Let's face it, there are, there are countless um, bits of advice to people who want to prepare for this race. It's, it's very often a pull out or a, an abandon is because of something that happened. Also, I think it is important that the race is achievable. You know, it's like, yes, it's hard. Yes, it's a challenge. Um, uh, we're not trying to be the hardest, but for sure, it's, you know, it needs to be a personal challenge, yeah. but it needs to be achievable. And, and, and a lot of that also comes back in when you're talking about, you know, how technical is the race. The race is not treacherously technical where, you know, you'll, you'll be walking lots and, you know, you've got huge drop-offs and routes. And that's not what we want the race to be. Again, we want it to be a challenge for a competent mountain biker. Um, it's certainly not just, you know, your weekend warrior race. Um, uh, but it needs to be, well, it comes back to, to achievable, rideable, um, you know, without fearing for your life nonstop that you're going over the edge. And, and that, that is something that is certainly very important to us. I think it's important to note that it's appropriate, that um, the, te the technical nature of, the, of, of a race and certainly of the Absecape Epic is, is that it's appropriately technical because at, at the trails that we rode in, uh, in the trial ride for the 2020 route uh, I was, I would say I was challenged by them, even though I've done the trial ride since 2007. And if I'd done that on my 26 inch aluminum hardtail, I would, uh, I would definitely not have ridden some of those trails. Um, but because of the equipment that we have, because of the skills we've all developed and because of the evolution of the sport, yes, it's, a, it's, I would say it's, it's appropriate for, it's appropriately hard for, um, for the times that we live in today. That was a good question. I mean, I imagine as technology develops, you have to think more 
carefully about how stages become more challenging because with things like 29er wheels, dual suspension, and of course the, the, the dropper post, which we have differing opinions about, that thing changes the game to some extent because the, the hard tells of 15 years ago, 26ers wouldn't cope potentially with the train that the riders can do now. I remember when we rode those bikes in, 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 the, in the early or in the mid-2000s, we, we, we were very proud of the fact that we had 1.9-inch um, tires um, because they rolled faster. And I don't know if we would, if anyone would survive the race with 1.9 inch tires uh, in today's day and age. So, quick digression then: a dropper post or no dropper post, Katie? Ride what you're used to. Ride what you're used to, Neil. I think uh, again, what uh, just to echo what Katie said, it's uh, it's a, it's a nice to have. If you've got one on your bike, don't take it off. If you haven't got one on your bike, don't put it on, especially for the Absecape Epic, um, unless you're uh, unless you're particularly timid on some of the really tricky descents um i think uh it's it's not more or less challenging than than you would expect i put it on the first stage down plum pudding and then i would leave it off for the rest of the game just that plum pudding section that could be quite useful with a drop boast plum pudding is such a short section and i think also it's like mike you're riding plum pudding when it's really badly eroded so it's we've never actually been, had it's a, never been well eroded for me you, you we've actually had a lot of people comment on it because you know when you ride plum pudding and um, which is the land rover technical terrain section yeah. on the on the prologue and you ride that throughout the year it's in bad condition and then every time it's like two days before the race we fix it up because yeah. you know we don't want people to crash out on day one um and then the guys all come down to the finish line and go what were you all talking about but that's generally for the first you know 600 riders and then as it becomes ridden out it True. becomes more tricky so i think let's not put too much fear into people for i want to put that a mental section. note in my diary saying i'm going to go ride that section the day before the epic next year just so i can say i've done it without walking down most of it yep <laughs> some final questions and this is always a debate about how you change things up in a, in a, in a race like the epic there's people talked about night stages about two stages in a day about overnight stages mountaintop finishes what are the thoughts around changing the event down the line is this format something that's entrenched or is there always a, a view to changing things up and, and looking at different ways of doing the route katie look i think we are always like for the race as a whole looking at innovation you know you, you don't ever want to just be stagnant um but it needs to make sense and certainly you know we've done the hilltop finish for the prologue previously when we were still at merendale um uh, it worked for the one year but it also came with challenges and we decided to not do it again for various reasons um uh, we've also a night stage wouldn't work for us i mean the race is is hugely televised you know televising a night stage it's simply not going to work also then you're looking at equipment and riders what they need to bring i mean this is not about adventure racing this is about racing so while personally i love night riding especially now in winter you know it's great on table mountain um it, it doesn't fit with the with the race as such so yes we are looking at changing up things but those typical ideas of, you know, like hilltop finish, um, night ride, yeah, thought about it, considered it, and currently certainly not an option. Neil, your thoughts on that? Everyone's got their dream of uh, what their perfect uh, epic stage would be, and I've got my list, and, um, you know, it can get pretty wacky finishing at the top of um, of the top of Table Mountain and all of those things. It's, um, it's, it, it, may be, it may be a wild suggestion, um, but it has to it has to be appropriate, um, and I think that if you look at what the team have done, 
And the regions that we approach, we, we, we're spoilt anyway. So to add anything to that is uh, perhaps it's even too spoilt. But just sitting on that, um, sitting on one of the peaks on stage two from, um, for the 2020 route, um, I always take some time to look at how, how far out of town we are, to look again at that horizon. And um, just to get there is a feat in itself, a feat of, um, of logistics and, and, um, and, uh, and operations just to, just to be able to put riders through these regions. We don't have cell phone reception through the whole thing. There's cell phone reception everywhere in the Western Cape, but we'll find, we'll find areas that, uh, that you don't get cell phone reception. So we, we have to look at what we have. And um, again, um, we can have fantasies, but it's, it's got to be achievable. Katie Sack, Neil Gardner, thank you very much for your time. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.